Space exploration, artificial general intelligence. Why are not animals intelligent or conscious? And what are some problems with AI research? These are the kinds of questions for the former Apple software engineer, intelligence researcher, and host of the podcast Artificial Creativity, Dennis Hackathon. Hello everyone, I'm Alex Peters and this is the Applied AI Pod. I'm in a conversation with Dennis where we discuss the ethical and epistemological challenges that science and humanity face as we continue to build more intelligence into non-biological objects around us. Today's conversation really provokes our comfort zone. Thanks for listening. What is actually the difference between AI and AGI? And do we have AGI um, already? Right. So the difference is that um, AI, or I like to call it narrow AI, just to to make the difference more clear. Narrow AI um, is about specific sophisticated technologies and and specific applications. So for example, um, a chess playing program or a self-driving car, um, text prediction systems, these kinds of systems that just different, they they differ from um, conventional programs in the sense that they're more sophisticated. Um, Right. But age, and we have lots of these already and the industry is bustling with those. But then we also have AGI, and AGI is a radically different thing because it's not just about um, any specific application, and it's not so much about the sophistication of the technology either. Um, AGI was the original goal that then sort of um, developed into these specific applications. But the original goal that Alan Turing wrote about, for example, in the 1940s and 50s, is how do we build a machine that can think like a human being? Um, so it could be creative, it could create new knowledge, it could solve novel problems, it would, it would be conscious, it would have free will. All of these things we can't say of narrow AIs. So there is, there is a, they're almost opposites, if you will. Well, we learn a number of, of fascinating things. I mean, for one is if, if, we, um, if we learn about how, I mean, the project of how to build AGI is really synonymous with the project of understanding people better. Because the, 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 the goal in building AGI is to, to instantiate a human mind on a computer. It's not, a, it's, it's not human in the sense that it's biological, but it's a human in the sense, or it's a person in the sense that it, it would be conscious and creative and intelligent and all these things that, that I mentioned. So um, if we learn how to do this, well, then we understand much better how the human mind works. In fact, an understanding of the human mind is necessary in order to build AGI. Um, so this has huge ramifications just for the field of psychotherapy, for example, because if we understand how the human mind works, well, then we should be able to deal much better with mental ailments. Um, so that is one thing. And then there's a, there's a broader sense, um, I think, which is, um, and this goes back to uh, epistemological discoveries that the, the physicist and philosopher David Deutsch has made. Uh, he's at Oxford. He writes in this incredible book, The Beginning of Infinity, he writes about how people are really uh, special because they have this incredible reach. So they could influence anything they want in the universe. 
um, as long as they develop the requisite knowledge to do so. And so the study of AGI is just the study of people. And so um, it's really one of the most fundamental fields um, because like David says, everything in the universe could in principle be touched by people. So the study of people underlies the study of everything else, if you will. Mm. But do we need AGI? What, what will AGI solve? Say we have it tomorrow. Right. So um, I think the, the, the first thing um, that AGI will help us with is, like I said, mental ailments. Um, one, of the, one of the topics in the book is that mental ailments are a software engineering issue. Um, if you suffer from a mental ailment, then there's a bug in your, in your program, so to speak, because your, your brain is a computer and any ideas you may have and any thoughts you may have, those are programs running on that computer. Right. So um, any rogue ideas in your head that make you unhappy or make you depressed or whatever it may be, um, must be dealt with as software. Um, so that is one thing, one thing I think we learn. Um, but there's another big area um, that I love exploring, and that is the area of space exploration and space travel. And mm -hmm. the, the application of AGI in this area is just phenomenal. Uh, I mean, it has huge implications because if we build an AGI, uh, which means if we build a person on a computer, um, then that automatically means that all the technologies that we've built so far around computers will automatically be available to the AGI as well. And that includes how to transfer one, from one computer to another. And that includes traveling over radio waves or facilitating this transfer over radio waves. And since radio waves travel at the speed of light, it does mean that a person could then travel from one computer to another at the speed of light. And this makes the, these long distances that we deal with in space exploration a little more manageable or a lot more manageable, I should say. Um, so I think it gives us a leg up in terms of exploring new worlds and it makes space exploration safer and all these kinds of things. So it feels um, a bit like we're in a, a sequence of outer carbon, you know, the, the, the Netflix uh, sequence. Uh, where you're able to transfer your your soul, your identity. Mm -hmm. um, do That's you right. see I'm, a case for that, like uh, a world based on that? Um, so I'm actually not familiar with with the show. It has been recommended to me, but I've never watched it. But yes, these these um, these concepts have been explored in many sci-fi. Um, movies and series and games. One application of it that I really love is in the video game Soma, where they play with this very thing and also the problems that result from it. Um, I, do I envision a world like that? I, I think it solves a lot of problems if you're able to do that. Um, I mean, I think we're still a, a long way off from actually building this, um, but I would love to see that one day that we're actually able to, to leave our human bodies that are really, if you think about it, quite, um, quite uncomfortable and constraining. 
and they get sick and they're very, they're, they're not really built for flir- for us to flourish. Um, mm. And yeah. we see this now how, you know, in this situation, we see how susceptible they can be when there's a new virus on the horizon. So, or in, in full, in full swing really now. Um, so if we can manage to break out of the, this biological battle, um, I think life will just be much more enjoyable and, and safer. Uh, yeah. Is, because AI, then, is AI research safe then? Yes. Yeah, so uh, I think, I mean, I guess we could split the, the question into two. One is, is narrow AI research safe? And then is AGI research safe? Um, and you're hitting on an important point there because there have been many people voicing concerns over um, both. And um, I happen to think that both of those are perfectly safe technologies. And so, and I can explain why. I mean, the reason that narrow AI can't be dangerous is because um, it's built only for very specific applications. So um, whatever it's doing, it can only do that. A chess playing program is only going to play chess. Um, it can't teach itself to destroy humans, <laughs> say. Um, that's just not part of its repertoire. So we need to think of, of these applications repertoires if we want to, to gauge how dangerous or safe they are. Um, and because people are creative, we could always come up with something that the narrow AI can't do yet in order to disable it and constrain it. And this is okay to do with narrow AIs because they're not people and because they're not sentient and, and they can't suffer. So it's fine to turn them off or to just, um, you know, to flip the switch and then they can't do anything anymore. So even if a narrow AI through some, you know, through bad programming or something ever got to be dangerous, we would be able to detect it immediately and then turn it off. And this is where, for example, model explainability models, for example, in the current um, narrow AI will actually play this role of stopping something bad that, I don't know, things got wrong in a certain mo- model, for example. Yes, I mean, we, we have to try and predict what the behavior of the AI will be. And as I said, in these very specific domains, that's usually not very difficult. I mean, if you have a text prediction system, um, well, you've built it to that specification. You know, the programmer has built it to predict text. Um, it's not going to to teach itself how to inhabit some machine and then run around killing people. It just can't do that. Now, if we talk about AGI, then these arguments don't apply, these points I made. So, for example, AGI is qualitatively the same as people, so by definition. So it could, in principle, think of novel ways of solving problems. Um, but um, because, so, and so we couldn't constrain its, its behavior, really. And also, we shouldn't. There's a moral component there, because now it is a person. And just because it lives on a, on a computer um, and is not biological, it's still conscious and intelligent and creative. So constraining it or turning it off would be immoral. So um, we have to be careful in, when it comes to these value alignment questions or these control problem questions that are really pseudo problems, I think. Um, because if, an, if it is true that by definition an AGI is just a person, that means when you create a person on a computer, when you build AGI, that is 
it's not literally the same, but it is qualitatively the same as having a child. And so worrying about the dangers of AGI is, is a bit like worrying about the dangers of having a child, uh, or actually it's exactly the same. Um, so people don't, um, people don't freak out about the dangers of having a child. Um, mm, they don't worry. Perspective. I think some people do, do get the, a bit uh, opposite this thought. So I think, you know, because people, there are people that practically opt out of uh, having a child. There will be people that will opt out of uh, AGI. They will be afraid of it. Would you oh, define yes. this as a racism? So, um, so I agree that some people may decide not to have children. Of course, people do that all the time. And sometimes people have children without really wanting to have children. Um, so that would be harder to do with, with AGI. Um, and likewise, people might decide that once this technology is available, they may decide not to use it or not to create a person on a computer. Um, and this is not to be taken lightly. So it's, it's a very different kind of program. Once you start, um, an intelligent program and it starts to learn and it becomes, and it, and it's then conscious from that point on, um, you, you have now created a person. It's not yours to turn off because that would be murder. So you have to be think very carefully before you start the, the intelligent program. If you really want to do this, because you only want to do this if you want to be a parent and if you're prepared to deal with the obligations that follow from being a parent. Um, this goes to great depth. I think, to get to that level where we are actually aware of what we're going to enroll ourselves into, I think we need to be prepared to embrace that first. Um, are we, because currently uh, we have made no progress in developing truly intelligent machines. So why, why, why didn't we make, make progress in developing uh, truly intelligent machines then? Yes, great questions. I agree that we haven't made any progress. Um, that statement alone is controversial, but I fully agree with it. Um, I think it goes back to, we can point at some specific things that happened in history that explain it pretty well, I think. And then there's also a broader issue. I'll, I'll talk about the, the specific thing um, that comes to mind first. There was a time, and it must have been the late 40s or the early 50s, when Alan Turing wrote about this stuff, um, where people were sort of thinking about you know, what is it that, that gives humans this ability to think and to learn? And is there a specific activity that people do that requires this kind of general purpose thinking? And at the time, people thought that chess, playing chess, was the kind of thing that you couldn't reduce to simple automated steps, that you needed creativity and intelligence, I use this term interchangeably, they're the same thing, that you needed intelligence to be able to play chess. So then people got very excited and started working on chess playing programs, but then they did find a way to reduce chess to very simple, automatable uh, rules and steps. But then rather than, uh, rather than adjusting their original expectation that then they would have found an intelligent program, but then they would have built an intelligent program. They decided that, that, that nonetheless, this was now an intelligent program. They admitted that it wasn't as intelligent as people, but nonetheless, they, they considered uh, the first chess playing program a success. Um, so I think that was the first mistake, but there's an underlying issue here, 
Mm-hmm. And that is that, for example, when Alan Turing wrote about this, if, if you read his papers about the, the topic, um, as, as great as his contributions were to, to the field of computer science, when it came to intelligence research, he just led researchers down blind alleys. And the reason that is, is because he was missing certain philosophical knowledge. And this is one of the core themes of the book, is that if we want to make progress on this front, we have to take philosophy seriously, and we have to unify software engineering and philosophy. And because one of the topics, one of the theses in my book is that those are really the same thing. They're two sides of the same coin. And so if Turing had not made certain philosophical mistakes, for example, his answer to what it is that makes people think and makes people learn, um, that is a philosophical answer. And the, the question of how people learn is a philosophical question. And so um, we need to unify these two fields and take philosophy very seriously. And philosophers need to take software engineering very seriously in order to, to solve this problem. And once we do that, I think then we can make fairly rapid progress in this field. Mm. Uh, indeed, I need to mention here uh, that uh, your book, A Window on Intelligence, is actually the base of our talk today. And um, your book tries to explain this uh, mistakes, the mistakes the intelligent researchers have been making and how to avoid them. And this is one of the fundamental uh, points you, you make in the, in the book as well. Um, and then we might wonder ourselves, um, why are not animals uh, intelligent? <laughs> yes, that's right. So common sense says they are. They're just less intelligent, maybe, than, than people. Um, and this really, I think the attributing intelligence to animals is basically the same mistake as attributing intelligence to a chess playing program, say. So when we see, uh, I just saw a, um, or I didn't see it. I, I listened to an interview on the, um, AI podcast with Lex Friedman and Roger Penrose. Mm-hmm. And Roger Penrose was describing this um, um, this behavior of I think it was I forget it was some predator predator I think maybe wild dogs or wolves or something, and he was describing their be- their their hunting behavior, and he said that you know it's clear that when you look at how these how these I'm gonna call, I'm gonna say it's wolves because I don't remember, but right. it's clear that when you when you observe these wolves. And how they coordinate and how they corner their, their prey. You know, clearly there is some conscious effort behind this. Um, there's some intelligent behavior. There's some planning going on, planning in the moment. Um, and I don't, so I agree that there is sophisticated knowledge at work. But if we want to answer where does the knowledge come from, um, that, is the, that is the important question we need to ask if we want to answer whether or not something is intelligent. Because the problem with wolves hunting uh, as, a, as a pack, as a group, is that the knowledge of how to hunt in this, in this way, they did not d- develop themselves. It makes sense for that knowledge to have evolved biologically. So they just inherited that knowledge in their genes. So we can perfectly explain their behavior, 
without referring to creativity or intelligence or consciousness. So um, we can recover the notion that animals are basically blind automata and because there's no behavior in, in animals that we see that requires creativity. And so the same applies to computer programs or narrow AIs in particular, when we think they're intelligent because they're sophisticated, well, we have to ask again, where did that knowledge originate? Um, the knowledge originated in the programmer's mind, not in the, the narrow AI itself. So the, the knowledge of how to play chess, for example, that originated in the programmer and then the, the, the chess playing program inherited it, so to speak, not genetically, but in, it inherited the, the knowledge of how to play chess um, and now it can just do it. It doesn't require any creativity. Um, and so if what we need is basically some, I would like to see some animal behavior that is much closer to what humans do. Like, for example, we, we built cars, even though there was no selection pressure in our ancestors to, to know how to build cars. You know, we build buildings and we build uh, microphones and computers and we talk over the internet. None of that was given genetically. We had to create that knowledge ourselves. So I would like to see something like that, some novel behavior in animals that couldn't be explained simply through genetic adaptations. Mm. You question where does the info come from? But then I wonder how does evolution work then? Uh, how did evolution get started? What was the origin of life then? Um, so, <clears throat> and how does it tie in and why, why does it matter for AGI to know all this and to actually give a, an explanation <clears throat> and be aware of it? Uh -huh, yeah. So evolution is, um, is a process of um, basically for evolution to happen, um, you need three different uh, things. You need replication, you need variation, and you need selection. And the reason the theory of evolution was developed is it was developed in response to this question of why do we see so much complexity around us? Why do we see so many things that have the appearance of design, such as a tree, um, even though we don't see any designer? And um, Charles Darwin then thought of the answer. And the answer is, that, well, it, it starts with, well, I should say he didn't think of the full answer, but he, he gave the first right, he, he made the first right approach. Um, but today we know that um, basically for the complexity around us to evolve without a designer, is um, it all started with very simple self-replicating molecules. And then what happened is these self-replicating molecules, um, th when they replicate, they occasionally make mistakes. And so um, if we think of these self-replicating molecules floating around in the primordial soup, then over time you will get more and more of these self-replicating self molecules and even though they make mistakes sometimes, and most of these mistakes are detrimental to their ability to, to replicate, um, every now and then a mistake will happen that will make their ability to, to spread and replicate better. And so then, by definition, those replicators that mutated in such a way will spread even better and take over the, the gene pool. Um, but now, the reason 
this is important for the question of AGIs because the philosopher Karl Popper made this uh, enormous breakthrough when he discovered that this theory of evolution, this interplay of replication, variation, and selection is not only relevant in biology, um, it is relevant to the question of how does knowledge occur in the universe? How, how is knowledge created generally? So it doesn't only answer how does the knowledge in genes, where does that knowledge come from? It also answers where does the knowledge in the human mind comes from? And so Popper developed his theory um, that is very analogous to biological evolution, and it is still literally an evolutionary process, um, where you can see the parallel to biological evolution if, if you think about how Popper described how human thinking works or problem solving in particular. So he says, human thinking starts with problems. Um, right. when, yeah. Whenever we create knowledge, it is because we want to solve a problem. And a problem is, is a conflict between ideas. So if we have a problem, um, then all we can do in order to solve it is we have to conjecture solutions. We have to simply guess what might solve it. And then we have to criticize these solutions. You can try some solution if it doesn't work or if you find some fault with it, some flaw with it, then you can discard it. Um, and so, uh, and then over time, some solution might be left over that you're happy with that solves the problem. And this is how all knowledge in people is, is created, both in scientists and in you know, programmers and in philosophers and in children and every human, this is the logic that they follow when they solve problems, when they create new knowledge. So basically, um, to get to the parallel with biological evolution, um, the accidental mutation of a gene has its counterpart in a variation of an idea or a conjecture, uh, a guess, and the, so the selection, the elimination of a mutation in biology and biological evolution has its counterpart in um, criticism in human thought. And so that is why evolution works to, evolution uh, is an explanation for both um, biological adaptations and human thought. And so it's, it matters because um, if we want to explain how people think, then we have to think in terms of evolution. And only, you know, in this case, it's not biological evolution. It's, it's some evolutionary process that happens inside every single person's mind. So there's evolu evolution occurring in your mind right now and in my mind and in everyone's mind um, at the same time. And so this also allows us, by the way, to, to refute the vast majority of, of claims that narrow AIs are intelligent because most of them are not most of them don't implement evolution. They implement some other kind of algorithm. Then how did people evolve from non-creative ancestors? Because we started with something that was not creative to get to present days where you, as you've mentioned, we, we invent PCs, we, we invent software, cars, and so on and so forth. That's right, yes. Yeah. So, um, if we claim that animals are not intelligent and that our ancestors, then, then we, we have to acknowledge that there must have been a time 
when planet Earth was only inhabited by plants and animals and so forth that were not intelligent. And so then we have to wonder, well, then how did people come on the scene? Because we are intelligent. So we must have evolved somehow from non-intelligent ancestors. And the way I think this works is, is very similar to how life got started. So life got started um, through these simple self-replicating molecules, as I said. Um, um, basically, there, there must have been molecules that very, initially only very indirectly promoted their own replication. And if through some detours and some, some changes they ever got better at this ability, then they would have slowly turned into replicators, um, very targeted replicators. And um, um, that is what kicked off the evolution of life. Now, so basically what we need, the, the primary ingredient for evolution to occur is replication. And then over time, because replication, you can't perfectly replicate forever, um, you will introduce mistakes. And then once selection acts on the system, you will, um, the system will begin to evolve and you will, the, the appearance of design will emerge. Um, and that's when knowledge comes on the scene. So what I guess is that something very similar happens to the origin of life in each of us when we are presumably babies, when we're still very little. And it's just that in this case, it happens in our minds. And I think what happens is there is even, even non-creative animals have ideas in the sense that they have knowledge. They're not conscious. They, they don't know that they have this knowledge, so to speak. They're not, it doesn't mean that they're conscious, um, but, they, but they have knowledge that is genetically given. And so also even a person, um, if a person wasn't conscious, he or she would still have knowledge or ideas in the relevant sense because um, there's all kinds of uh, genetic knowledge encoded just for different abilities. For example, how to breathe, how to, you know, in animals, how to walk or how to fly. So one of these ideas in our ancestors, I think, there was a genetic mutation that made the idea, that turned the idea into a replicator. And so now what happens is replication begins in a mind. And as I said, replication is the crucial ingredient for evolution to, to happen. And so once this idea replicates in, in that person's mind, well, then we can, we can start to see how evolution might have, might have occurred in that single individual's mind. And I think that's still how it works today. I think that is why, why people are creative today, because that is the thing that in babies kicks off creative and intelligent thought. And, um, and we all inherited that uh, genetic mutation from this single ancestor. I know this, this parallel is really silly uh, compared to the profound talk. This makes me think of the movie, The Invention of Lying, because uh, there's a world where no one has this notion of lying, and suddenly um, a question keeps popping into someone's head so intensely <laughs> and so repeatedly that uh -huh. this is how the invention of lying happens, that he, he listens to that question over and over and over, and then something different happens, something different replicates. Yes, that is a very nice analogy. Yes, that's right. Something, something truly novel can occur um, yeah. through accidental mistakes and, and replication. 
truly thought-provoking. What is consciousness? Because you mentioned consciousness and what gives rise to it? Right. So here, um, I basically, and I say this in the book, I don't have anything that new to say about consciousness that uh, anyone who's familiar with Popper's philosophy won't already know. Um, but I think consciousness is a fascinating topic and we, I do cover it because it would be wonderful to know how it works, of course. And, um, we have to ask ourselves the question, you know, what is it in an AGI that makes it conscious? Um, is this some extra ability that we need to develop or would it basically become conscious as a sort of byproduct? Like, does that just come along for the ride? Um, so um, Popper conjectured, for example, that, well, consciousness seems to have to do with the, it seems to have to do with expectations not being met. And he gave this example I like of, if you walk up a flight of, sta a flight of stairs and um, you reach the end, you reach the top, thinking that there is one more step, um, you will be very aware that there wasn't one more step because it feels very awkward when you get to the top. Um, uh, and an example I give is that if you ride your bicycle when you're a kid, um, it's a very difficult process at first and you have to be consciously aware of every little thing you're doing. Um, you have to steer, you have to balance, you have to learn to pedal and you have to do all this at the same time. And you have to focus your attention on all these things. But as you get better, you can then draw your attention away uh, from the things that you've gotten better at and focus them on something else, for example, the road. And so once you get really good at riding your bike, you don't really pay attention to riding your bike anymore because you've already corrected all the errors with, ride, with learning how to ride a bike. Because it's like Popper said, learning is an error correcting mechanism. So um, then if you then ride your bike and you look around and then you run over a pothole, well, then you become again very aware of the situation because something happened that you didn't expect. Um, so consciousness seems to have to do with, with error correction um, and disappointed expectations, like I said. So since a creative algorithm, since a creative algorithm um, is built on error correction and, is, and because error correction is the key ingredient of any knowledge creating process, um, well, then it seems fair to say that an AGI, because it is made of this creative process, would also be conscious. Now, unfortunately, we still don't know how consciousness works or what it is, really. We don't have a good explanation of it. But there is an explanation for why any intelligent being is also automatically conscious. Dennis is an expert on the difference between AI and the more advanced field of AGI. His new book, A Window on Intelligence, The Philosophy of People, Software and Evolution and Its Implications, explores the science and philosophy behind man's search for artificial general intelligence. It is on sale through Amazon and Apple. It's been fantastic having Dennis on the show. Take care, everyone.